Welcome, and thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Today, we are speaking with Daniel Berthold, philosopher, professor, musician, and a dear friend. I have known Daniel since our high school days. Our friendship was founded on our struggle with the issues that presented themselves to us, such as the meaning of life. Why are we here? What purpose do we serve? We delve long and deep into those issues. We would have long discussions about man's relationship to man. I have long felt that it is nature that fuels the human spirit and that the philosopher's relationship with it has been a complicated one, but one that is changing. So I asked Daniel if he would speak to the idea of the philosophy in nature, how the philosopher has helped shape our attitude towards it, and how philosophy can help us move forward in a meaningful and purposeful way. Daniel hesitated and said he wasn't sure he had anything new or meaningful to say. But after thinking about it for a while, he agreed to. Some 50 years later, we are still delving long and deep into the issues that confront us. You know, I just took a stroll through my garden and I noticed there was a lot of weeds. But I also noticed there was some philosophy in there. Can we talk about that? Yeah, philosophy in nature. I think the most obvious way in which philosophy is in nature is because philosophers who do philosophy are in nature. They're not somehow floating above or beyond it. Uh, the question is, isn't so much whether we are in nature, but how. More interesting, and maybe the sense in which you're getting at it, is the idea that nature itself is in some sense philosophical. Not, of course, that trees or rivers or ecosystems write works of philosophy, but in the sense that wisdom, and remember the, the word philosophy comes from the Greek philosophia, the love of wisdom, that wisdom can be found in nature. I think about the great Taoist philosopher Lao Tzu, who talks about the most important wisdom comes from nature itself, comes from the way, the Tao, the way of nature. For human beings, the highest wisdom that we're capable of is to seek to attune ourselves to the ways of nature and change the way we live according to that attunement. I think philosophy is in nature if we learn to become sensitive to it, to do what you were doing this morning amongst the weeds, finding patterns, the interconnectedness of nature, its beauty, its sublimity. So can we go maybe back just a little bit? I believe that philosophy and philosophers 
actually helped to formulate man's idea of superiority over nature. Do you agree? Absolutely. There's no question about it. So the the great tradition in Western philosophy, at any rate, certainly there are exceptions uh, in the East, if you think about Buddhism or Taoism, which are very nature-centered philosophies, or if you think about Native American philosophies or other indigenous cultures. But the, the dominant canon of philosophy, of Western philosophy, has been straightforwardly anthropocentric until, oh, really only 50 years or so ago. You know, philosophy centrally involves the question of how we ought to live. Anthropocentrism, the human-centered view, assumes that it's really only human beings that are uh, that have inherent value and that nature yeah nature is necessary for us but it has no value in itself you know that perspective uh, dominant over centuries has it's hard to argue that it hasn't seeped into the whole sort of cultural and economic and social way of comporting ourselves towards nature and reducing nature to what Heidegger calls a giant gasoline station. Starting really in the 1970s, and remember, I think the first Earth Day was was 1970, philosophy has become interested in environmental ethics. So there are now hundreds of journals, thousands of books, dozens of centers and associations for the study of environmental ethics, and there's been a substantial pushing back against anthropocentrism, the exploration of the perspective that nature isn't simply there for our use, but that human beings are a part of nature. We're not separate from it. We're interconnected and dependent on uh, not only each other, but the earth, you know, certainly not all philosophers have moved in this direction in their thinking about nature, but many have. Philosophers, like the poet, tend to speak to the world. They don't speak to a single audience. Do you see that they have a responsibility to try to change our collective view on our changing relationship to nature? That's a great question, and it's a it's a vexing question because philosophy has become, as opposed to what it used to be, very much an academic discipline, very much sort of professionalized philosophers writing for each other, writing technical journal articles and books. You know, we've forgotten that Socrates never wrote anything. He went out into the public square and talked with anybody. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, John Dewey, Bertrand Russell, these were people that, yeah, they wrote, but they were very much concerned with exactly what you're talking about, speaking not simply to the professional, not simply to the academic. Sartre and Camus were not academics at all. That's the bad news, is that philosophy has largely sequestered itself within 
the ivory towers. Um, but there is a sense in which many philosophers today really essentially do just think about the world and don't so much speak to it. The good news is that there is an increasing interest in broadening the notion of philosophy. So it's not just people with PhDs who can be philosophers. Any of us who are interested in thinking hard, in challenging common assumptions, even assumptions that make us comfortable, uh, is engaged in philosophy. And um, many, many, many professional philosophers are engaged in what's called public philosophy. And so people like Cornell West, Judith Butler, Peter Singer, Martha Nussbaum, three of my colleagues in this very small philosophy department at Bard College are very much engaged in public philosophy. There is a responsibility it's of philosophers, and it's a responsibility that has not, for, for the last 200 years at any rate, has not been shouldered very well for the most part. But there are signs of life. But People yeah. like, like Nietzsche said simply, God is dead. You know, yeah. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. That started an amazing reaction yep. just to that simple statement. Descartes wrote his discourse on method in French, which was unheard of for a philosopher, should have been writing in Latin. And he wrote in French precisely because he wanted to reach a wide number of people, not just people who knew how to speak Latin. The poet does speak to the world and has that responsibility, as does the philosopher. But there's also a responsibility of the way in which we view education, the way in which right. we view what it is to be most fully human. We can't be most fully human unless we attune ourselves to the poets and to the philosophers and the artists. Might you address how freedom, justice, and nature are all connected? Yeah, that is a big one. So I guess one of the easiest ways to think about that is to think about the environmental justice movement or sometimes called the environmental racism movement, which really begins in the late 1970s. Benjamin Chavez did work for the Commission for Racial Justice and wrote a report that's hundreds of pages long documenting the way in which hazardous waste sites are much more common in poor minority neighborhoods, about how smokestacks and PCB landfills and poisons and pollutants of every kind are located in the areas that the poor and the non-white live in. People of color have historically been excluded from leadership positions in the ecology movements. Ecology movements have been overwhelmingly white, middle class. Robert Bullard 
writes whole series of books, Dumping in Dixie, The Wrong Complexion, speaks of environmental racism as the legacy of American apartheid. We might think, you know, today in this time of the coronavirus, there's all kinds of evidence showing that the spread of coronavirus is affected by climate change. Well, who are those who, in the world who are most affected by climate change, by droughts, by desertification? The poor, the colored. The environment and issues of human justice and the human potentiality to live in a space in which we can be free are absolutely in, intimately connected. Human justice requires justice for nature. It requires thinking about, if you will, the rights of nature. Human inequality, human injustice is in many, many ways directly linked to the injustice of the ways in which we treat nature. So how important is nature to the human spirit? I would say that the human spirit is nature. Uh, Nietzsche said that spirit is only a name for something about the body. And in another place, he says, I am the earth. Uh, I don't simply live on it. I am the earth. My embodiment is a participation in nature. However we think of the spirit, I think it's perilous to try to define the human spirit as something that isn't in nature. We are, we are nature. The evolution that has led to human beings is an evolution in nature. It's an evolution of nature. Human beings are nature made conscious of itself. When nature has gained the capacity for sophisticated articulation and self-reflection, so much of that articulation and self-reflection has been a um, a rejection of nature, the very thing that uh, makes us possible. So, so how has your your thinking of nature changed over the years? You know, as you've delved in these complicated relationship between man and nature. There are a number of ways to answer it. One is that at a fairly young age, uh, I think I was 18, I became vegetarian. That for me was essentially an ethical choice. I sensed some kind of commonality between the human and the non-human. It took quite a while actually after that before I began to think hard about my affinity with the rest of nature. I don't actually remember what sort of moved me in that direction, but I think it very well might have been the reading of Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, which was um, published just after Leopold died in a... He was helping neighbors put out a brush fire. It was published in 1949, just an absolutely beautiful, poetic, impassioned description of his uh, various experiences in nature. 
uh, written in in such a way that it's almost impossible not to kind of <laughs> say, oh my God, I need to go for a walk. I need to, you know, I need to see the things that this man was seeing. I I need to to see not only what is there, what can be immediately sensed by the senses, but I need to to be able to learn to experience nature in such a way that I can see things that can't be seen with the eye, the interconnection uh, between things, the way in which what we see, what we, what we hear, what we touch in nature is a result of a long process of integration within a habitat, within an ecosystem, things that can't be immediately seen, and somehow a sense of the wonder, the sheer unbelievable wonder of nature and of our participation in it. This is a this is a good example somehow of this kind of dialectical relationship between thinking, which is one of the things that philosophers are supposed to do and are supposed to try to do well. We're supposed to think about other points of view, etc. But this is a good example of sort of the dialectical relation between thinking. So I read a book and I thought about the book, but the book then brought me to think about ways in which I can explore and change ways that I actually experience things. And then that in turn, these these gradual changes in learning to experience things, you know, the, the basic course of my path of thinking about, but also experiencing nature has been more and more and more, well, I'm tempted to say mystical. You know me very well, Stefan, and and you probably have a big smile on your face. I'm not sort of known for my mysticism, my spiritualism. You know what the American transcendentalists, people like Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller, Leopold, who wasn't a transcendentalist, but he agrees that, that what is most majestic about nature is not simply what we can see with our senses, but what we can experience that goes beyond those senses, a sense of the wholeness of things, of the, inter- of the oneness of things, of the interconnectedness of things. Language is obviously very important to the philosopher. There's a sense in which language... One of the things that language does, but by no means the only thing, but one of the things that language is an attempt to do is to represent symbolically uh, the real, that is, the objects of our experience, to the extent that the world of the objects of our experience becomes depleted and impoverished, then language has less and less to seek to represent except perhaps by way of memory or nostalgia. So, yeah, language is very, very, very important. Um, You know, it can represent a tree, it can represent a table, it can represent a, you know, a bottle of wine, but it can't represent nature in its wholeness, in its fullness, in its mysteries, in the sense in which it always escapes 
and exceeds what can be said about it. How do you see or how can we bring the philosopher out of that ivory tower and the common person? How can we bring those two together so that the two can share in that discussion on how important nature is? I do think that it's encouraging the movement towards a a commitment uh, to public philosophy. But, you know, that also implies that people are reading the newspaper, for example. Most people in our country, at any rate, don't read the newspaper. A lot of it goes to education in grade school and uh, certainly in high school and in prisons, which is what I do. Uh, Teaching philosophy and teaching ecology, teaching environmental ethics, there are ways of doing this, and it does happen. There are grade school students who take philosophy courses, but but very few of them, Uh, just as there are very few grade school curricula where there's a reading of poetry. Uh, or or a serious study of art. I think that education, if done well, which is not an easy thing, but it can be done, it does happen, is a huge resource for progress in terms of bringing dialogue between philosophers and, and I'm going to say, other people. Although, again, I, I think that we're, we are all at least potentially philosophers. It just requires that we commit ourselves to thinking hard and to being genuinely open to the perspectives of others and that we examine the assumptions that we have really, as Nietzsche put it, in a merciless way. We shouldn't make our assumptions be our friends. Education is the place where that can best happen. Yeah, not in the Atlantic, not in the op-ed pages of the New York Times where a lot of them write. That's important. You know, people do read those things, but not many. I would just like your thoughts when you hear that phrase, we are nature. Yeah, I think so. We've touched a bit on certain ways that uh, I understand that. We are nature in the sense that, you know, in a very obvious sense, you know, it's not like we're over here and nature's over there. No, we're we're in the same space. Our very existence is a result of natural evolution, the evolution of nature. It's a perversity of human culture that we have come to ignore the obvious. We are nature. But I would say that human beings are nature in in a different way than other beings are nature. Uh, so that our place in nature is in some ways different. Humans, uh, to state the obvious, are uniquely able to have an enormously destructive impact on the rest of nature. I think it might be Edward Abbey in Desert Solitaire said that if the human race were to disappear overnight, the rest of nature would breathe a sigh of relief. How many of the 10,000 species that we're losing every year are a direct result of human impacts? A very, very, very large percentage, perhaps 90%. We human beings have a kind of responsibility towards the rest of nature. Leopold said, 
we need to come to think of ourselves as being fellow citizens of nature, not its conquerors. So we have a kind of responsibility towards our fellow citizens that other species don't. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Daniel Berthel and that this interview will encourage all of us to think deeply about the issues that confront us. I would also like to thank Daniel, not only for this marvelous interview, but also our long-lasting friendship. The music was composed and performed by Daniel Berthold. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can also subscribe to Nature Revisited on your podcast server. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And if you would like to support Nature Revisited or share your thoughts and comments, please visit NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. And I hope you will join me for our next episode. And until then, remember, we are nature.